Welcome to the City Alliance Church Podcast. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our messages. Our prayer is that you would listen, learn, and be inspired to love God, love others, and serve the world. Subscribe and share these messages to bless others. Here's this week's message. We are kicking off a brand new series called Faith works. And kind of as you saw in the video, there can sometimes be a dichotomy where we say that faith works over here, but it doesn't necessarily work over here. Like faith works in church, right? When we come together, we sing these incredible songs. And guys, wasn't worship awesome this morning, being able to come together and sing praises of Jesus? That was awesome. And it's like, yeah, faith works here, but what will happen when we leave this building? Will faith work when we go home into maybe a dysfunctional or difficult situation? Uh, Does faith work when you actually go to your office building, to the school that you work at, or the hospital? Will faith work when you interact with all these different kinds of people, whether it's people that share, you know, maybe they have different values than you, a different faith than you, a different worldview than you? Will will your faith work in those situations? Uh, Does faith work in the world of budgets and spreadsheets and management meetings? Does faith work when you're in school and you're trying to capture all the information and you've got deadlines and pressure? Does it work in those situations? Does faith work when you're at the playground and your kid is tantruming? And it doesn't matter what you do, they will not stop. They will not be bribed. They will do whatever it takes to just kind of cause all sorts of chaos. Does faith work then? Or does faith only work behind the stained glass windows of the church building? Does your faith work beyond where we are today? And that's what we're going to be looking at today. And this is really something that's important because faith is meant to work outside of these walls. In fact, faith isn't just something that we're like, all right, I just need to hold on to my faith. I need to hide out from all the people that don't share my faith. No, no, no. Our faith is meant to springboard us out because God has called us to be agents of change and transformation in all the different places that he puts us in. And this isn't my idea. In fact, we're going to be looking at a message shared by one of the early church leaders, a guy named James. And no, this is not James Haywood, although they both have a beard. This is James, and you know, he is one of the early church leaders. In, in fact, uh, he was a pastor of a church in the city of Jerusalem, one of the first churches that was established there. But here's what James is famous for. He's actually more famous for his older brother, a guy named Jesus. And the only reason why we know that James and Jesus are brothers is something that Paul, another early church leader, wrote in a letter to the Galatians. Paul writes this. He says, I saw none of the other apostles, apostles basically just means church leaders, only James, the Lord's brother. So right off the bat, uh, we learned that James is the brother of Jesus, they're half-brothers, but here's what's kind of interesting, is that James was actually a skeptic. James did not actually believe that Jesus was God or who he said he was when he first showed up. In fact, look what John, one of Jesus' biographers, says about his family. He says, for even his own brothers— did not believe in him. So, so James is one of these guys that kind of came to faith kicking and screaming. It wasn't something that he could acknowledge that his own brother could be God in the flesh. And this is one of the reasons why I love skeptics. I love people that have doubts, that have questions, because what I find is, is, is folks that are skeptical, they want to go deeper. They, they're not happy with just the surface. They ask hard questions, and they're not afraid to get to the bedrock of what things are about. I love talking to skeptics. In fact, skeptics, when they finally get their questions answers, make some of the strongest followers of Jesus, because they've gone after it. 
So I love that James, that's his story. He's a skeptic. And I, I, just as a real quick thing, I, I've got to say, I think one of the strongest evidences of, the, of, of Christianity is the fact that James believed that his brother was God, okay? Think about your own siblings, okay? One of your siblings says, hey, by the way, I, I, I'm God. You're like, bro, you can't even keep your room in order, and you expect me to believe you can keep the universe in order? Come on, man. Like, and so he, really, I think there's something powerful about this, because not only was James a skeptical brother of Jesus, he also got to see his brother in his resurrected form. Uh, look what it says here. It says, he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. So when Jesus rose from the dead, you know, we celebrated that last week with Easter, he appeared to his own brother, just to confirm his faith. And so we see James kind of go through these different phases of being the skeptical little brother of Jesus to being a witness of the resurrected Christ to eventually a well-respected leader in the church. It says that James was respected not just by the believers, but also by the unbelievers in the community of Jerusalem. And James is passionate that faith doesn't just stay in your head, but it actually is something that you do. He wants to see faith that works. You want to see your faith work. That's what he's really passionate about. And so when you read the letter that James wrote to his church, it's a very practical letter because he's like, faith can't just be something that stays in your head. It can't just be something that you just feel in your heart. It's got to impact your hands as well. Your head, your heart, and your hands. So that's what James is going to write today. And so, you know, if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to James chapter 1. We're going to kind of marinate on that today. In fact, we're going to spend the next few weeks in the book of James, kind of unpacking what he says to us. But here's how he starts this letter. He says this. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. So a couple things we need to know from this passage right here. First off is that James is writing to the 12 tribes. Who are the 12 tribes? Well, these are Jewish followers of Jesus that have been scattered all over the Roman Empire. Because what happened was when all these Jewish people were hearing about Jesus being the Messiah, they put their faith in Jesus, they started to follow Jesus, and this led to persecution. And the persecution meant that they had to get out of Dodge. So they, they got out of Jerusalem, they went all over the Roman Empire to basically do, to start kind of Christian communities there. And so James is not writing a theology that is philosophical, but very practical. Because for them, they need to know how does faith work in persecution? How is my faith actually going to impact me in a time when things are really difficult? Guys, here's, here's my hope over the next few weeks as we kind of walk through the book of James or this letter that James wrote. My heart is this, is that we would have greater, greater boldness in our faith, a greater passion, but a faith that doesn't just stay stuck in our heads, but works through into our hearts and into our hands. It actually changes the way we work, changes the way we see the world and the way we see people. So today, the title of my message today is this, Faith Works when life doesn't. Faith works when life doesn't. And because I think the first thing that James talks about in his letter is he understands the fact that life doesn't always go the way you plan. Things don't always happen the way we want. And so this is what he breaks out. He says, faith works when life doesn't. Look what he says in verse 2. He says this, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now remember, James is talking to people that have actually become refugees. They've been pushed out of their homes, so they don't have homes, they don't have jobs, they're trying to figure out how do they make ends meet, and he's telling them, this is how you need to handle it, and and they're being hunted down for following Jesus. Now, I don't think many of us that are here or that are watching online have to worry about being hunted down for our faith, 
But we all know what it's like to experience trials of all sorts. Maybe some of you are experiencing a trial at work right now. Maybe you're in a situation at work where you're kind of experiencing some hostility because of your faith. Maybe it's through just jokes or you're being mocked or outright hostility. And you're like, how, how, how do I manage this? Or, or you're in situations where your job is changing. There's a restructuring at work and you may not have a job by the end of the month or the end of the year and you're struggling with how do I manage this? How do I care for my kids? And you're feeling that trial that's coming into your life. Or maybe it's not with work. Maybe it's actually in parenting, okay? Now, we all know that children are a gift from the Lord, okay? But they're also a trial sometimes, amen? Okay? And it doesn't matter if they're 2, 12, or 22, right? They're, every age and stage has a different challenge and a different situation that we have. And so, yeah, your children are a blessing right now, but man, they, they, they are just headstrong at some, at some points, right? They will just not listen. They will just kind of do whatever they want to do no matter what. They're tantruming. They're keeping you up all night long. Whatever it may be, you're in that situation where whatever age or stage you're in, it is a trial and it's a blessing. But you're kind of feeling more of that trial stage right now. Or how about in our health? You know, sometimes we wonder, you know, am I going to be okay? You know, maybe you get a diagnosis that you don't like. Your body isn't doing what it used to do, and you're all of a sudden faced with all these limitations, and you're like, what do I do with this? Like, God, how do I get through my day with this? I mean, this is something our family is going through right now. We have a, a close family member who's in the hospital. And that's a trial that's not just for that person who's suffering, but for all of us around that are watching this. Sometimes that's the hardest part, right? When you see a loved one going through difficult and painful circumstances, and you can't do anything. You're not in control. Trials and tribulations that come our way. And all sorts of things in between. Maybe you have young kids and aging parents, and you're kind of caught in the middle of that. But we all have trials and tribulations. I once heard someone say, all of us are fighting a battle that none of us can see. And how do we show compassion to people in those situations? But here's what James says as he talks about these trials. He says this, he says, because you know that the testing of your faith develops, what's this word, church? Perseverance. That's right. And perseverance must finish its work so that you may be, what? Mature and complete, not lacking anything. But when, so, so, so here's the thing, James is using this language about maturity and completion. There's actually this Greek word he uses called telos, which means the final things, the end things. And so these trials and tribulations that come into our way, it's not just so that we can, you know, endure and persevere, it's actually so that we can be complete, so that we can actually be our authentic human beings, our authentic selves in Christ. So as we go through these trials, as we go through these difficulties, they're meant to kind of create in us who God has destined us to be. It's like you with more patience. It's you that's more pure. It's you that's more holy and more blameless. It's you without sin. That's what God is trying to do, and it's something that will never be finished in this life. It's something that will be continuing on and on until we get to eternity. But, you know, as we're reading the book of James here, you know, as I was reading through this passage, I'm like, this next section, I'm like, man, I don't know if I agree with what James is saying here. You ever read, do that when you read the Bible and you're like, I don't know if I agree with what this guy's saying. And I know it's like, you know, who's right here, me or the Bible, right? Like, it's like, it's like a tension here. But here's the thing, when, you, when you're reading scripture and if something rubs you the wrong way, pay attention to that. Because there's something that God wants to wrestle down. Here's what James says in verse 5. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom... He should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, 
Because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. Now, I read that first part, and I'm like, yes, I need wisdom, God. Like, give me some wisdom. God, pour some wisdom on me so I can rewrite Def Leppard. You know, all that kind of thing. God, I need more wisdom. But then this next part, but he must believe and not doubt. I'll be honest, I, I, I read that, and I was like, well, God, isn't doubt a, a good thing? Isn't doubt a healthy thing? Like, you can't just buy into whatever people say. Like, oh, like but you're saying I have to ask without doubt and believing? And in fact, I even said this, God, this feels very much like the prosperity gospel. Like, maybe some of you have heard of what the prosperity gospel is. It's this teaching that says, if you follow Jesus, everything in your life must be good. You're going to make more money. You're going to be healthy. You're going to be wealthy. Everything's going to go great. And I'm like, man, this verse feels a lot like this. Is, is that what's really going on? in this passage. Is that what's, what's happening here? Well, here's what James says. He finishes this point where he says this in verse 7. He says, that man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. And I was kind of wrestling with this. So, so what is going on here? Like, what is James doing? Does he really mean, like, if we don't really believe, you know, kind of, kind of you, know, you know, create that faith in us that nothing's going to happen? I don't think that is what James is saying. I don't think James is even saying that if you're supposed to follow Jesus, your life's going to be healthy and wealthy and all that stuff, because he's writing to people who are suffering. But James is actually linking something here. He's linking trials to prayer. He's saying, in the midst of your trials, ask God for wisdom, and he will say yes. He will answer what you want, but ask without doubt. You don't have to doubt God's character, because he will answer his prayer. And I think we need to understand that there is a difference in what the scripture call, in, 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 in what I would call doubt versus cynicism. I think James is specifically talking about cynicism here, not doubt. Because I actually think that doubt is actually something that's healthy. We, we have to have doubt. In fact, when we start to have doubts, it means that we're actually thinking and we're processing. And it's how we kind of make knowledge our own. So not only is healthy, it grows us. Our, our, our doubts, our questions will help us go deeper, ask better questions and deeper questions. And also, it is something where we grow in trust. Because when you doubt, you take your doubts to God and say, God, I am struggling with your goodness in this situation. I'm struggling to understand why you are allowing this to happen. God, would you show me? And what happens is that doubt actually is a catalyst for growth in our faith. But cynicism is different. Cynicism is a symptom of sickness. When we're cynical, it comes more out of bitterness, out of anger, out of deep places of hurt. And, and cynicism really leads to stagnation. Because when you're cynical about something, you're not looking at growing. You're just looking at kind of writing something off, moving on, and just kind of staying in that place of self-pity or anger or hurt or pain. And finally, cynicism is all about being sus. For the millennials and Gen Z or Gen X, it, that means sus Suspicious. Cynicism is all about being suspicious of God. Can I really trust God's motives? Like, is God really good? Is God really, like, doing something in this that, like, is, is worthwhile? Like, I don't know. God, you seem kind of sus. But, but that is what cynicism is about. And so when James is talking about doubt, he's talking about this, not this. He's talking about how do we take our doubts to God as we wrestle through them. It's a, it's a sign of health. Because listen, James was himself a skeptic. James didn't believe that Jesus was God when he first presented himself. He didn't believe that Jesus was who he said he was. But as James asked questions, as, as he grew in deeper in his faith and his understanding, it changed everything. 
That's why it's good to have questions. It's good to have doubts, but it's not good to be cynical. Because doubt's going to lead us to questions. It's going to lead us to faith. I would even think that doubt leads us to Jesus. That's where a lot of his disciples were. Now, in this next section, verses 9 through 11, I'm actually not going to cover that today. Because one of the themes in James that oftentimes doesn't get a lot of attention is the rich versus the poor, some of the economic themes that we see in this book. I actually want to take an entire week and kind of walk through the different themes of rich and poor in the book of James, because I think it's important. It's actually one of the most understated parts of this book that I want to really kind of take some time to kind of go into. But, you know, James kind of uses that as a little parenthesis. Then he wraps up this section, kind of puts a little button on it in verse 12, where he says this, "'Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial.'" Because when he has stood the test, he will receive a crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. So James is saying those who persevere, those who kind of push through the trial, who kind of get through it, they're going to receive a crown of life. And I think what James is thinking about, because he's probably thinking about the Olympic Games or the ancient games, or once you kind of get through those trials or those testings, you get a crown like this. Like in the Olympics, where you get kind of like, a, like an olive crown. It's what's known as a living crown, because that crown is still growing. And so that's what James, I think, is thinking about. He's like, when you get through the trials in your life, you will get a crown for pushing through because you've persevered to the end and you've seen God's goodness in the midst of it and you'll get to God's goodness at the end of it. What does that actually look like? Well, that's exactly, I think, the question you can ask Baron Batch. Baron Batch is an artist who's based in Pittsburgh, but before that, he actually played for the Pittsburgh Steelers and Texas Tech. And what he said was, is I made football my identity. Football was my life. That's all I lived for. I lived for football. I lived for the game. That's it. And then when he experienced a almost career-ending injury, it threw him in a tailspin where he was in a trial where he had to figure out what is life really about? What's my identity really about? And this is where he was actually confronted, Baron says, as a skeptic with who Jesus was. Let's watch his story. They say football is life in West Texas. What happens if you can't play sports anymore? If that's your life, what happens then? My mom was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis when I was around 10 years old. Um, she passed away when I was in ninth grade. I have three brothers and a sister. We kind of had to raise ourselves. And that's kind of where my hardheadedness comes from. It comes from no one can tell me anything because I've done it on my own. I honestly believed that the success that I had achieved was, uh, it was only going to get better by me doing it the way I thought I should do it. If you're a thousand steps away from God, which I was, God will take 999 steps just so you'll take that one. October 18th, 2006. I'm blocking a linebacker in, in team drills, and someone just rolls on my ankle, and like that, I'm just down. They took me in, got x-rays, and that quick, that it's, it's just done. God had taken my identity and, and the person who I said I was, which was a college athlete, and took it from me. I was mad at God. I still didn't want to just get the hint that God had put a roadblock. God had removed all the distractions and the one big distraction that was keeping me from Him. And, and that was football. I eventually started going to, going to church, started going to Bible studies. 
and changing my life in little ways. I started reading the Word, getting in the Word more. It was not one of those things you wake up and your legs heal and I start dancing around. I say, God, you healed me. It wasn't one of those. Oh man, after that, things got, things got harder after that. I said, God, I know I'm a screw up. I know I'm a screw up. You know I'm a screw up. I understand that, that you gave me these talents and these abilities and I spit on them. I disrespected the things that you gave me and, and tried to claim them for, for myself to bring glory for me. And I remember the first time I put back on my cleats and went back out to play. The feeling that I had knowing that the only reason I was out there was because God put me back out there. To me, Jesus dying on the cross is the ultimate act of love and the ultimate act of obedience. I have two scars on my ankle. I think that God gives us scars sometimes to, to remind us where we've been and more importantly, that, that he's healed us. And then once we have those scars, we can show people and, and say, look, this is what God's done for me. One of the things I appreciate about Barron's story is his insights on the cross. On the cross is where we see the love of God displayed. You know, you've heard it said God loved us so much he stretched out his arms for the whole world. But he also said it's an act of obedience. Jesus did not feel like going on the cross, did he? Remember he prayed that prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. God, if you've got another plan, if you've got another play, let's go with that. But when, when God said no, Jesus said, then let's go. And it was on the cross that Jesus gave his life for us. Jesus, who endured the ultimate trial, persevered through the ultimate pain and suffering in our world so he could get the crown of heaven. And it says, for followers of Jesus, can we expect anything less? If our own uh, leader went through great suffering, we would do the same. And I love what Barron said about scars. Because, you know, if we see Jesus in eternity, he still has holes in his wrists and in his side and in his feet. All of us are going to go into eternity with scars. But I love what he said. He said, our scars, they remind us of the past, of what has happened. And they remind us of healing. Because when we have a scar, it means that there's a healing that's taken place. And when we can show off our scars, we can show people, look what God did in the pain. Look what God did and the brokenness. Look what God did through my mistakes. Even though I screwed up, look what God did. He took this situation and he transformed it because faith works. Faith works. It's not something that's theoretical. It's incredibly practical. And I want to look at three takeaways in this passage of what do we do, or how does faith work when life doesn't? Because listen, right now, maybe you're thinking, Nathan, life's going pretty well. Like, things are pretty good. You'll probably need this down the road. And some of us are in situations where, man, I need a word because I'm in a trial right now. I'm in a tribulation or you've got friends that are there. So here's the first takeaway is that when you're experiencing trials, we can be joyful and not jaded. We can be joyful and not jaded. You know, Barron said something in here that I thought was interesting in his testimony. He said, you know what? When I came to Jesus, things got harder. Anyone ever experienced that? Like when you finally get your life right with God, it's like, all right, I'm going to start following Jesus. I'm going to get serious about Bible study. And, and you're thinking things are going to get great. And it, actually things get harder. 
Things get worse. Things start to fall apart when you start to become obedient to what God's called us to do. So here's what James says when you go through that. He says this. He says, consider it all joy, my brothers. You can go to the next slide here. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. We said this last week, right? Remember when Paul said, hey, you know, consider it joy when you go through hard times. And you're like, is Paul and James, are they all tone deaf? Like, are all the church leaders just like, do you guys not get it? Like, you want me to consider it joy when I have a cancer diagnosis, when I'm getting bullied in school, when I'm struggling with anxiety and depression? You want me to consider it joy? Like, what, what, do, you, what do you mean by that? How can James say that? And I think the reason why James and many of the biblical writers can say that is because I think they make an incredibly important distinction. Joy is not the same as happiness. Joy is not the same as happiness. And I think in our culture, we've conflated the two. And I think that's where we get in trouble. Because happiness is based on happenings, right? You know, if my team wins, I'm feeling pretty good. You know, if, if, if I got all A's, I'm feeling pretty good. If I win my race, God is with me. It's great. But, you know, if my business isn't doing well, if my boss isn't happy with me, if there's conflict in my home, oh, I'm not doing well at all. You know, God must not, be, must not care. But that's, but that's the thing. Your life can fall apart, and you can still have joy. Because here's what the biblical writers define joy. They define joy as a settled contentment. Because happiness, it's an emotional state. It ebbs and it flows. It comes and it goes. But joy is a settled state. It's a state of being, not an emotional state. It's this understanding, if you're a follower of Jesus, that no matter what happens in my life, I know that God is at work in it. It's a settled understanding that even if the worst thing happens to me, I know that God has got me in the palm of his hand and he's holding me through it. It's the understanding that there is an eternal perspective that I can have in this temporal being of life. And so if I have that eternal perspective, I know that I'm going to be okay. I know that my family is going to be okay. I know the world is going to be okay because God is at work in the midst of all of these things, even of the hardest things. So that's why James can say you can be joyful and not jaded. You don't have to, you know, know all the answers or, or, or feel good all the time. You can still have that joy knowing, I'm settled. I'm content in the midst of this. So if you're taking notes, that's the first point. You can be joyful and not jaded in hard times. The second takeaway is this, is that trials are there to complete us, not delete us. They're there to complete us, not delete us. Because oftentimes when we experience a trial, maybe it's something that has coming to us or maybe something that we have done, we feel like, man, this thing is out to destroy me. This lawsuit is there to crush me. This whole thing is, go- is there to kind of destroy me. And we got to get this sense that we aren't going to make it. But this is where it's important to have this eternal perspective. Because here's what James gives us the perspective about trials. He says this, because you know that the testing of your faith, that's trials that come our way, develops what? Perseverance. And perseverance must finish its, finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Bottom line is this, is God's trials, they're testing, and trusting is for instruction, not destruction. God allows trials, he allows difficulties to come into your life because he wants to mature you. He wants to develop you. He doesn't want to keep you as a spiritual child, but he wants to help you see all the things that, he wants you to grow, he wants you to develop so that you are ready for eternity, so that you're ready to spend all of eternity with him. In many ways, I think a lot of times the way God uses trials in our lives or the way teachers use tests or assignments, right? Uh, we have a lot of teachers in a room like this. Any teachers in the room? Yeah, can we make some noise for our teachers, everybody? They do a great job. 
and, and you know, my, my wife Jackie, she, she was a teacher for many years, so I really appreciate teachers because they put up with a lot. Teachers, you put up with so much, right? Uh, you know, especially when you give your kids assignments and things like that, you sometimes get some really interesting things. Jackie would always have these really interesting stories of what her kids would bring back to her when, when she would give them assignments. And I found a couple of really kind of interesting things that kids would answer when they were given tests or assignments. Here, here's one example here. You can go to this next slide. Suggest one cause of deforestation. This paper. <laughs> not wrong. Maybe not respectful, but not wrong. This one's my favorite, though. Check this one out. Go to the next one. Name the quadrilateral. Bob, Tedison, Sam, Kate, Harry. Harry is spelled wrong. Okay. So teachers, we appreciate you for all that you do. <laughs> but here's what I think is really interesting about this. You know, when I talk to my wife or when I talk to teachers, teachers, they want their students to pass the tests that they give them, right? You want your kids to do well so they can graduate, so they can get to the next level, so that they can be successful in life. That, that's the goal of, of, of testing. And in the same way, God allows tests in our lives because he wants to grow you. He wants you to graduate to the next level of faith, to a deeper sense of trust in him, to a version of yourself that has more patience, that has more passion, that has more boldness for your faith, that is more loving, that is more kind, that is more outward-focused. And that only happens when our faith is tested because God is testing something that's happening on the inside, the integrity of something he's building within. Mechanics don't test scrap metal. They test cars. They test the integrity of a vehicle because that's got to handle the pressure of the real-world driving conditions. God is testing you so that you can handle the pressures of real-life situations and circumstances that are coming your way. We don't always like them, and we're not supposed to like them. But we need to understand that the purpose of these trials isn't God trying to destroy you or God trying to take you out, but he wants to grow you. He wants to develop you in some of those really difficult situations, whether it's a coworker that's mocking you because of your faith or having fierce and nasty temptations, health struggles, a family member passing, and, and everyone's trying to kind of struggling with that grief. God is at work in all of that. And that's why we have a decision to make. When, when we want to see how faith works, faith works when we can be joyful and not jaded. When we can understand, okay, I don't like what's happening, God, but I'm going to trust you in this. But also we have the understanding that trials are there to complete us, not delete us. God is maturing you in your faith and in your ability to handle the things in your life and also to bless others. And the final thing that trials do is that they help us have wisdom and not whine. <laughs> Wisdom without whining. Now, I want to kind of put a caveat there. When we first experience trials, it's actually okay to complain. It's actually biblical. In fact, last summer we looked at an entire book of the Bible called Lamentations, which is one big complaint to God. It's biblical for us to complain and go, God, I do not like this. This situation sucks. Like, this is the worst. Like, why would you allow me to go through this? Like, that is a normal part of when trials come our way. Like, we are called to lament. But we can't stay there. That's why James says this. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, go to the next slide here. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. Here, James is actually giving you the power you need when you're in the midst of trials and tribulations is that we can ask God for wisdom. 
about the trial. And we know with certainty that he'll give us an answer. Uh, you know, over my lifetime, whenever I'd experience any kind of difficulty or trial, my first go-to question was why. God, why, why are you doing this? God, why, why are you allowing this to happen to me? God, why, why, why is this situation not going the way I wanted to? I've been working hard at this. I've been praying. I've been doing all things. But why? Why is the whole thing falling apart? And over time, I've learned that there's, that's, why, the why questions aren't always the best questions. God doesn't always answer the why, which is really frustrating. Sometimes he does, but he doesn't always. In fact, the majority of the time, God doesn't answer the why because we can't understand it this side of eternity. So I'm going to share with you a better question. In fact, it's in your notes. It's this. God, what are you trying to teach me in this situation? God, what are you trying to teach me in this struggle? What are you trying to help me understand as I'm going through this? Like, God, I don't understand. Give me some insight, God. Help me understand what you're doing in the midst of this. You see, this is the question that God will always answer. The answer is yes. I will, I will give you wisdom and I'll give you insight in the hardest times of your life. Because have you ever noticed this? You can have two people, two different people go through very similar trials. Maybe they get diagnosed with cancer or their kids walk away from God or, you know, their marriage falls apart and one person's like, I'm done with God. Look at all these things that have happened in my life. I am done with God. And the other person goes, man, God has been so good in the midst of all this stuff and their faith is stronger. Do you ever wonder, like, why that is? Like, how does that happen? Perspective comes from wisdom. I really think when we ask God for wisdom, like, God, what are you doing with this mess and this chaos? He will give us wisdom, and he'll teach us how do we get through that in the midst of some really difficult things. Because listen, we're all going to go through trials and come out of those trials differently, which is why it's so important for us to ask for wisdom. God, give us wisdom in these hard times. A couple years ago, when my daughter was about six months old, uh, we were hanging out with um, another couple friends of ours, and they had these three boys, and they were crazy. Now, when I say crazy, I don't mean energetic or rambunctious. They were nuts. Like, I mean, like, legit, like, they were crazy. Like, they, you know, we're at the playground, they're hanging off the lamp pole, they're jumping off the roof, you know. And I, I noticed the mom and her firstborn, they were, like, at it like this. Like, he was just stubborn, strong-willed, would not take no for an answer, would push back and push back and push back. And finally, you know, like, whatever was happening was resolved, and they sent them out to play. And, and so we're just kind of sitting at the bench. And, you know, my daughter is six months old, and so she's very quiet and demure. So I'm like, man, like, boys are crazy. Um... I have one now, so I know for sure. So I remember going, going to my friend saying, saying, Rachel, how the heck do you do that? Like, how the heck do you, like, parent these boys? Like, it just seems like it's nonstop crazy. Like, how do you do that? And, you know, she had this look in her eye of just, you know, pure exhaustion. It's the look I see in many of you young moms right now, that look of exhaustion in your face. It's there all the time. But she said something that I thought was really, really powerful. She said, you know what, Nathan, like, I remember praying and saying, God, can you give me some wisdom? Because right now it feels like parenting's a trial. And she said as she was praying, she felt like the Lord tell her this. She, go, she said, I felt like God was saying to me, imagine what will happen when I capture the heart of your firstborn son. That headstrong willingness, that stubbornness, that I'm not going to stop. Imagine when I capture that heart and how I'm going to use that boy to change the world. Because we live in a world 
where there's a lot of immorality, there's a lot of just shifting of things, but he's going to be steadfast. He's not going to move. He's going to need the things that annoy you about your kid now, he's going to need 10 years down the road. So maybe you're looking at your kids right now and you're like, man, we just had this fight. This is annoying. They're difficult. What, imagine what would happen though when God captures their heart and those very things that bug you now are going to be the very things that are going to help them sustain their faith and have perseverance in some of the challenging situations of life. So now that, that's been my prayer for my kids. Whenever they do something that bugs me or annoys me, I'm like, Lord, capture their heart. Capture their heart. Transform these qualities. Refine these qualities so that they can use, be, so they can use them, so that they can understand that their faith can work when life doesn't. Faith works when our life doesn't. Look how James ends his letter. He says this. He says, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those we love. So followers of Jesus in the room, the reward that we have when we persevere is we get to the end. We survive. But not just survive, we thrive. But for us as followers of Jesus, our reward, it's not money, It's not stuff. Our reward is Jesus. He says to us, well done, good and faithful servant, and he gives us the crown of life. Because we need to remember this, is the reason that we can be blessed is because Jesus was cursed. Jesus became cursed on the cross so that we could have life. I love what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, Jesus, for the joy set before him, he scorned the cross, or he scorned, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat at the right hand of the throne of God. I don't know what trial you're going through right now. I don't know what situation, or maybe, like James says, it's a variety, it's a buffet of beatdowns that you're going through right now. But the word of hope that Jesus has for you is this, is if you can persevere until the end, I'm your reward. You have hope, you have healing, you have restoration in me. Because Jesus exchanged his cross for a crown, and in the same way, we'll exchange our trials. We'll show our scars to our Heavenly Father. He'll dry our tears and heal us more deeply than we could ever experience in this life. We're blessed because of what Jesus has done for us. In a moment, we're going to go and continue our time of worship. But right now, I want to invite our prayer team to come forward. If you're part of our prayer team, we invite you to come if you're praying today, just so people can kind of see who you are. Because I know for some of us here, you are in a trial, and it's fiery, and it's painful, and you're, you're not sure what God's doing in it. And God has given us everything we need. He's given us his resources in the midst of hard times. And so our prayer team would love to pray with you. Because sometimes we might need to actually take our trials to someone to pray with us, to encourage us, to speak words of truth to us. Because sometimes we're still caught up in the trial that we can't see outside of it. And we need to see God's perspective, not ours in the midst of it. So I invite you as we go into worship, our prayer team would love to pray for you. I'll be up here and again, we'd love to pray for you as well as you're kind of walking through this because we're not meant to go through trials by ourselves meant to go through trials with others who are walking with us, who are holding us up when we can't hold ourselves up. That's the beauty of the church. 
That's what we do for one another. We hold one another up when we can't hold ourselves up. So I want to invite you to come for prayer. If you need prayer today, we have prayer available every single week. As we go into this time of worship, I want to encourage you to come for prayer. We want to pray for you. Don't carry these burdens by yourself. We want to encourage you, pray for you, bless you, that you would persevere in your trial. We pray for you. Holy Spirit, would you fill us right now? Lord, one of the things that we need in the midst of trials, because there's so much uncertainty of how it's going to look on the other end, is peace. You are the God of peace, and you give us the peace of God. So we come before you, Lord, and we ask, would you give us your peace in the midst of not knowing, in the midst of limitations, in the midst of frustrations? Maybe some of you here, you're on that line of doubt and cynicism where you're kind of wondering, God, can I trust you? I feel like what your Heavenly Father wants you to know is I've made you for this. You have what it takes. I have a plan in the midst of your pain. Trust me and I'll walk with you. Father, I pray for those of us who are in these difficult places. Would you meet us? Would you guide us? Because, God, we can't do this alone. Would you bring your body around us, God, to encourage us in the midst of our struggle? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Thank you so much for joining us. We pray that today's message encouraged and inspired you. If you live in the Williamsport region of PA, we'd love to engage you in person. You can find more information on service times, city groups, and our incredible kids and youth ministry at citylions.org. That's citylions.org.